Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is July 5th, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. First, a quick correction from last week's episode number 26. In support of our article on Harley-Davidson in World War I, we posted a picture of a line of tough-looking soldiers, goggles over their eyes, weapons placed on their thighs, gas masks at the ready. It's a really great picture, but it turns out that this image was not actually from World War I, but a bit later. So we've replaced that image at ww1cc.org cn with an equally interesting photo of a Harley, this time definitely from World War I, and this bad boy is fully equipped with a machine gunner sidecar. We've moved back in time 100 years ago. It's the morning of July 4, 1917. At his residence in Paris, General John J. Pershing comes to his window as he hears the musical peals of the Star-Spangled Banner. The music is being played outside by the 4th Mounted Band of the French Republican Guard, having arrived at his residence with a large crowd of people to honor the general and the members of the 2nd Battalion, 16th Infantry, who arrived in Paris from Saint-Nazaire just the previous day. At a critical time during America's Revolutionary War against Britain, the French had come to the aid of the United States, and today, on the 4th of July, 1917, the French citizens of Paris are showing their gratitude and respect for the alliance renewed and the favor returned. Pershing, with soldiers from the 16th Infantry, began a full day of events. This included the descendants of French officers of the American Revolution who present their banner to Pershing. The symbol of Franco-American friendship is not lost on Pershing. Pershing will recall this event warmly in his memoirs. Quote, No other occasion that I recall was more significant or more clearly indicates the depth of French sentiment and affection for their old ally. Afterwards, the Americans in the French battalions and the military band marched to the Cemetery de Picpus to visit the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette, a French hero of the American Revolution. En route, hundreds of thousands thronged the parade, giving particular attention to the marching American soldiers. French ladies pushed into the ranks, walking arm in arm with the soldiers. Arriving at the cemetery, Pershing is coaxed into some brief remarks, but soon turns it over to Lieutenant Colonel Charles Stanton, whose remarks include a line that will echo through history. Lafayette, we are here. This account of the 4th of July, 1917, comes from an article published by the American Battle Monuments Commission. The link to the article is in the podcast notes. Back in the United States. Dateline, July 2nd, 1917. Headline, Race Riots in East St. Louis. There's tension leading to violence in East St. Louis this day. The massive industrial expansion brought on by the war effort in the North and the Midwest is drawing a new source of labor, including African Americans from the rural South. 
the newcomers are not universally welcomed by the white population. Certainly, there's a concern about job security, but there's also a deep-seated pervasive racism of the time. On July 2, 1917, the situation goes out of control. It begins as several white men in a car shoot into a crowd of black pedestrians and drive off. When an hour later a similar car comes back into the neighborhood, locals fire back and two plainclothes police detectives inside the car are killed. The situation escalates as white mobs descend on East St. Louis, while the police look the other way. Over the next day, reports are that 150 black people are shot, beaten to death, or lynched. Rioters torch large sections of the neighborhood as over 7,000 people are displaced. Finally, on July 4th, the National Guard arrives in force and the riots are put to an end. People call on President Wilson to address the issue, but he stays largely silent. To protest the situation, plans for a 10,000-man march in New York City are being made by the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, the NAACP. A few days earlier, Dateline, June 28, 1917. Headline, Baker to Censor All Troop News. Today, the New York Times reports that Secretary of War Newton Baker is very, very upset by the publication of dispatches from France telling of troop movements and Pershing's men arriving. This puts him at odds with George Creel, President Wilson's propaganda chief and publisher of the official bulletin, the government's Daily War Gazette. Clearly, there is great tension between the desire to sell the war and the military's need for secrecy, a tension that's not going to go away anytime soon. And speaking of the official bulletin, this week we picked another topic to emphasize through the week's articles in the bulletin. This week we look at logistics. Dateline, Thursday, July 5th, 1917. Headline, huge figures showing the scale of army operations at present time are given. Here are some illustrative figures showing the scale of army operations. Purchases have been authorized as follows. Over 5 million blankets. 37 million yards of bobbinet. 2 million cots. 35,500,000 yards of cotton cloth, olive drab. 21,300,000 yards of unbleached cloth, 6 million pairs of shoes, 11,190,000 pairs of light woolen socks. Compared to 1915, in the year 1915, for sustenance for Army personnel, $9,800,000. This year, $133 million. In the year 1915, $10 million for regular supplies, this year almost $110 million. In 1915, $13 million for transportation, and this year almost $222 million. The list goes on, but the scale of changes in acquisition, and therefore the need to organize that, is logistics. And it's logistics at a very impressive scale. In terms of construction, three quick stories this week alone. Headline, 16 tented cities will be built for guardsmen. The story reads, The War Department authorizes the following. Construction has begun on 16 wooden cities for our new National Army, but this is only half of the military cities that will soon be ready for our soldiers. 
Steps are now being taken to build 16 cities of tents to receive the National Guardsmen who will be called to the colors soon. It will not take so long to make them ready for the troops, and for this reason, the work on them has been held back until the wooden cities were planned and put under contract. Headline. Public Library for Each of 32 Army Cantonments The American Library Association has been asked by the War Department's Commission on Training Camp Activities to furnish public library facilities to the 32 cantonments and National Guard training camps to be opened by the War Department around September 1st. And the association has undertaken to render the desired services. Headline Payment to Contractors for Army Cantonments Explained The story reads, Colonel I.W. Littell, Quartermaster Corps, who was in charge of cantonment construction, in a letter sent to the General Munitions Board in reply to reported delays between the forwarding of invoices for materials shipped on government orders and the date of payment thereof, he states, it is the intention of the cantonment division to pay contractors for the National Army cantonments daily covering materials inspected and accepted to which the United States takes title, weekly for the purpose of their payrolls, and monthly on the ninth of the month for all other bills not settled for on the daily payments. And finally, a related story. Headline. Sufficient supplies for National Guard and National Army in good time assured. In the last three months, more troops have been outfitted than during the entire Spanish-American War. U.S. soldiers in France have six months' supply with them. The article explains that Secretary Baker went ahead and put in orders for these massive supplies before there was actually money to do so. And the article states... It saved the day. The adjournment of Congress March 4th without passing the urgent deficiency bill left the War Department without money to pay for the supplies for future needs, but the orders were placed anyway, and a great savings of time was affected. All of this speaks to a level of coordination process that is unprecedented. This is called logistics, and with us today is an expert on the subject. Joe Johnson is the Chief of Staff of the Defense Acquisition University. Welcome, Joe. Great to be with you, Teo. Joe, let me start by asking about the Defense Acquisition University. What is it? It's an organization of 600 government employees established by Congress in the early 1990s to train the roughly 160,000 Defense Acquisition Workforce members in the Department of Defense. They're the people who are responsible for buying all the supplies and equipment and services for our armed forces. Joe, the scale of the war effort ramp-up is incredible and actually probably hard for us to fathom today. Was there any precedent for this? We were not prepared for World War I, and you have to think of the scale of the war. At its height, the Union Army in the Civil War was 600,000 soldiers. We sent 3 million soldiers across the Atlantic Ocean to France. A huge increase. Not only that, we had to supply them over extended lines of communication. In the Civil War, it was 500 miles. It was 3,000 miles just to get to the western ports of France. And then you had to get the supplies to the fighting forces who were hundreds of miles inland. So, yes, unprecedented. 
So the subject here, logistics, is as big as the war effort. And there's really two giant heads on this Hydra, here and Europe. So just for today, I want to focus here in the U.S. How did this logistics capability change our nation then and into the following century and up to today? Well, it reflects what was happening around the world. The latter part of the 19th century had been a period of heavy industrialization. And so logistics in World War I reflected that. We were now able to link all the factories across the country, have visibility over what was being ordered, get it to warehouses, get it to the port. So it really changed the way we would operate in the future. Nothing had happened on this scale before, but it did reflect the industrialization of the United States. And it's interesting to note that we always focus on World War II, the production lines, None of that would have happened without our experience and lessons learned in World War I. Joe, what encompasses logistics? For, for most people, it's only a word, but it's much more than that, isn't it? You're exactly right, Teo. In World War I, the problem the logisticians faced was daunting. In short order, after war was declared, they were told you would have to supply millions of troops. So what did they have to do simultaneously? And this is the real challenge. They had to construct the camps that you referenced in 60 days, or at most 90 days. They had to determine what it would take to outfit all of the weapons, the supplies, the equipment that this immense force would need. They had to get with industry and place these orders on industry. And they'd have to do it in a way where they would have priorities instead of every little supply agency ordering a few, consolidating it and setting priorities. They had to ensure that the railroads, not owned, but run by the government so that you could prioritize supplies and raw materials getting to the manufacturing firms and getting what was produced to the warehouses and then to the ports. They'd have to get enough ships so that the troops and all of the equipment that had been ordered could get overseas. They had to work with the Navy to make sure those ships could safely get overseas. And once overseas, they literally had to build up French ports to unload, store, and distribute all that equipment. And they had to work all of these things simultaneously. An incredible challenge. What, what made it even possible to do that? I believe that what made it possible was those supply personnel and logistics personnel who were on the staff at the time, but they were augmented by many people from industry who joined the military. These people often would start as a major. Charles Dawes, a good example of that, started as a major, ended up as a brigadier general. And they brought this industry knowledge to the logistical challenge so that we could get very organized and work very effectively with the factories in America to get everything produced. So really key in this war was getting industrialists in uniform or advising the War Department and the Department of the Navy. Joe, if we can, I'd like to have you back over the coming weeks to talk more about this. I understand it's not the flag and glory and fight part of what happened 100 years ago, but logistics really is a huge aspect to the war that changed the world and changed our country. Thank you, Tao. That was Joe Johnson, the Chief of Staff at the Defense Acquisition University. Now, Joe does a full-length presentation on logistics, and if you'd like to contact Joe, just go to ww1cc.org and click on the Contact Us in the menu to send us a note, and we'll get you in touch with him. 
Our next guest is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. This week, Mike is going to give us some in-depth on a subject we opened a few episodes ago, the 1917 Espionage Act. It and the following year's Sedition Act are probably the most draconian assaults on the Bill of Rights in our nation's history. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo. Our headlines today, Rebel Now, Boys. The Espionage Act produces a nation of snoops trampling on the Bill of Rights, and this is special to the Great War Project. Opposition to the draft in the United States is widespread and sometimes turns violent. On the plains of Oklahoma, writes historian Michael Kazin, a band of tenant farmers sets out to fight the draft in quite literal fashion. During the summer of 1917, a secret and loosely structured group known as the Working Class Union built a membership as high as 35,000 with angry denunciations of the war and conscription. Along country roads, Kazin reports, the radicals hung posters that kindled the hope for insurrection. Now is the time to rebel against this war with Germany, boys. Get together, boys, and don't go. Rich man's war, poor man's fight. If you don't go, J.P. Morgan and company is lost. Speculation is the only cause of this war. Rebel now. Episodes like this prompt President Woodrow Wilson to take strong and potentially unconstitutional action against the opponents to the draft. His toughest action is legislation known as the Espionage Act. On Flag Day a century ago, reports historian Margaret Wagner, President Wilson delivered a speech on the grounds of the Washington Monument in which he declared that there are many agents of Germany who seek to undermine the American government with false profession of loyalty to its principles, but they will make no headway, the president warned. Next day, the Espionage Act of 1917 passed. Its target, opponents of the war and what its supporters call seditious speech. According to Wagner, it becomes a powerful tool for suppressing any suspect or unpopular opinion, allowing fines up to $10,000 and imprisonment for up to 20 years for those convicted under the elastic terms. Wagner observes, overzealously enforced, the act would facilitate the very abandonment of tolerance the president had so darkly predicted. Yet without the press censorship provision, Wagner reports, neither the president nor the attorney general considered the Espionage Act sufficiently strong. Once the act was passed, all the nation's law enforcement agencies moved quickly to put the war in their gun sights. Wagner reports, as soon as the country was officially at war, the attorney general assumed the initiative, urging all federal attorneys to be constantly vigilant and asking the nation's police chiefs to keep watch on pacifists and German-Americans. His request that all citizens bring their suspicions to the Department of Justice initiated a tidal wave of often self-serving accusations. Soon the attorney general was boasting to President Wilson that he had, according to Wagner, several hundred thousand private citizens keeping an eye on disloyal individuals and making reports on disloyal utterances. At the center of this snooper brigade is an organization called the American Protective League. By midsummer a century ago, this group claimed more than 100,000 members nationwide and more than 600 branches. Wagner reports, as it continued to grow, eventually enlisting some quarter of a million volunteers, the League branched out from its original intent to moderate enemy aliens and began peering at the behavior, statement, and finances of anyone suspected of disloyalty. The result, a widespread disregard of law in the United States, with warrantless wiretaps, mail interception, and trampling all over the Bill of Rights. 
And that's some of the story from a century ago from the Great War Project. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. To watch World War I videos on what was happening 100 years ago this week, go visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. This week's episodes cover a variety of subjects, including a hardware piece on the armored trains of World War I, a fascinating story about Russia's new offensive, the Russian Women's Battalion of Death, and Fighting Without a Country, the Czechoslovak Legions of World War I. The link is in the podcast notes or search The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial and the commemoration. The biggest news for the centennial and the commemoration was announced late last week. From Bloomberg, the headline reads, President Trump to attend Bastille Day Parade in Paris, honoring World War I U.S. soldiers who arrived in France 100 years ago. U.S. President Donald Trump has accepted French President Emmanuel Macron's invitation to attend France's Bastille Day celebration as the two men put aside their differences to pay tribute to the U.S. soldiers who fought in France 100 years ago. The offices of both leaders state, President Trump will attend the traditional July 14 military parade where American troops will march alongside French soldiers to commemorate the centenary of the U.S. entry into World War I. Now, this is pretty exciting acknowledgement of the centennial by the White House, and we'll continue to cover the story both here and hopefully with a live stream of the event on July 14th. We're working on it. Stay tuned. Follow the link in the podcast notes for more information. From the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, here's our upcoming event pick of the week. On July 18, at the Museum of the City of New York in Manhattan, World War I Centennial Commissioner Libby O'Connell will delve into America's cuisine, both at home and abroad during the war years. Among her many skills, Dr. O'Connell is also a food historian and the author of The American Plate, A Culinary History in 100 Bites. The event, inspired by the museum's exhibition, Posters and Patriotism, Selling World War I in New York, will feature both well-known and lesser-known foodstuffs for attendees to sample. French 75s, a cocktail popular during the period named for the French 75mm field gun, will be served courtesy of a new wine cocktail company, Pampelon. Additionally, attendees will receive a copy of an original cake recipe promoted by the Red Cross to send to soldiers overseas. Read more about the event by following the link in the podcast notes. Also look for events happening in your area by searching on our U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register, where you can submit your own upcoming World War I events by clicking on the big red button. It's all at www.cc.org slash events, all lowercase, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Another event we want to let you know about is a one-woman show happening as part of July's Capitol Fringe Festival in Washington, D.C. It's called Ready to Serve, and it's about World War I nurses. Here with us today is Eloise Shuttler, spoken word artist and storyteller, to talk to us about our upcoming performance. Eloise, welcome. Thank you, Teo. I'm delighted to be here with everyone, so thank you for inviting me. You're perfectly welcome. Eloise. 
I understand that you put two years of work into researching and writing the show. Tell us about that. Well, I did. Uh, actually, I've come to live with these women. Uh, it started longer ago than them. I first did a story on the Hello Girls, the switchboard operators. And several years ago, I knew that I needed a second story in order to bring the service that women had given in World War One. I was a nursing student at Hopkins in 1954, and I noticed on the wall in the reception area a plaque that noted the World War I hospital in France and the World War II hospital that they sent to the South Pacific. And I was always curious. I remembered that, and I decided that I would go and see if there was a story there. There was, there is, and it's the story I tell of 64 nurses trained at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, and uh, I'm very proud to have it. Eloise, what do you do to engage modern-day audiences who may not be familiar with World War I at all with stories from people 100 years ago? Well, this is what I do. I am a professional storyteller. And one of the things that we try to do is to involve the people that are listening to us tell these stories. This is a personal story for me. The disappointment that I have in this story is that I didn't ask any of the elder nurses if they had gone to France. I missed an opportunity for veteran stories firsthand. So in some ways, my personal attachment is I'm telling their story like I should have told it years ago. Uh, what I do is I start this story in 1970. And the nurses have been back for 50 years. I am currently an 80-year-old storyteller. So I had to tell this story as an 80-year-old woman. So I'm telling the story is coming from the mouth of an 80-year-old veteran nurse. And she draws you in immediately to explain this. There's a war going on in our country for our boys in 1970, and she no longer wants to watch television on the news because it makes her remember the boys that she took care of when she was a World War I nurse in a hospital in France. And that's the bridge that I make. And then I just sit there and tell you her story. She tells you her story. I did not personally want to be telling a story about them. I want to have them tell their stories. I was looking for the personal voice of the nurse that went over so that we could hear from them what it was like to be there in the winter of 1917 and 18 where the weather turned against them up in the mountains and where the water was freezing and they were freezing and several of their nurses died from that weather because they couldn't work in the extremity of that cold. The interesting thing to me is they were warned by French nurses about a month ahead of October when the weather was going to turn, and they told them about the weather. What happens to a man in a trench? That he gets trench foot from the water and from the cold and the mud, and that when they come in to the hospital and they're taken and cleaned, they've got layers and layers of lice on them because they've been the warmth that's been feeding the lice. So they said, you can do this, 
but you have to prepare for it. And so that's some of what I try to do. Eloise, you are amazing. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for coming on and telling us about that. Eloise, when does the show run? Where, where, where can people see this? The, the show is at Gallaudet University. Uh, it opens tomorrow night, actually, and I decided that for this one, I would do seven performances, hoping to reach more people to honor these women. And their experience is very similar to the experience that nurses were having all over France who were coming in, all over any battle area. And so by coming and hearing their story, we're really looking back and honoring these women who went forth. The other thing I want to make a point about, they were 25 to 44 years old. They were not young women as are often portrayed in the movies. The Red Cross had decided that they would only have seasoned nurses who could face any situation and handle it. That was Eloise Shuttler, spoken word artist and storyteller, to tell us about her new performances of Ready to Serve, a one-woman show about World War I nurses. Follow the links in the podcast notes for showtimes at the festival. And now for our updates from the States. From the North Texas World War I Centennial Commission, a new exhibit opens July 9th at the Fort Worth Central Library. The exhibit, From Cowboy to Doughboy, looks at the impact of World War I on Texas, Texan life, and the state as a whole. We put a link in the podcast notes to an article written by Jim Hodgson, executive director of the Fort Worth Aviation Museum, about life in Texas during the war. Our friends from the North Texas World War I Centennial Commission are also planning a number of other events, including film screenings like Wings, The Big Parade, and All Quiet on the Western Front, plus lectures about training camps, the Native American and African American experience of the war, and much more. Learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. In our international report this week, we're going to London to the London Underground, but not to the train tracks you might think of first. Under London's streets runs 6.5 miles of train tunnels built solely to help the city transport mail. In the years leading up to World War I, the streets of London became clogged with horses and buggies and increasingly speedy automobiles. It became difficult and nearly impossible to successfully deliver mails and parcels above ground, so the Postal Service circumvented the congestion altogether. In 1914, construction began and the mail moved from the surface to the tunnels. The tunnels also served a special wartime purpose during World War I, safeguarding art treasures belonging to the National Portrait Gallery and the Tate Gallery, including the Rosetta Stone itself. London shut the whole thing down well over a decade ago, but it's now reopening as a postal museum and attraction where visitors can see replica locomotives, engineer tools, the bag exchange system, and more. Learn about the history of this unique mail system and a new place to visit in London by following the link in the podcast notes. For our spotlight in the media segment, we spotted an article from the Air Museum Network. The headline of the article reads, Pennsylvania teen makes solo flight in 100-year-old Curtis Jenny. Meet Carolyn Doherty, 
a young lady who turned 16 earlier this year. Now, while many soon-to-be 16-year-olds may be dreaming of a sweet 16 party, Carolyn had her head firmly in the clouds with a dream of flying her father's pride and joy, his 100-year-old Curtis JN4D, the Flying Jenny. And she got to fly the Curtis at a flying circus air show, impressing all the spectators, including her visibly proud papa. Paul Doherty, Carolyn's father, is a bit of an aviation enthusiast. He runs an outfit called Doherty's Air Shows with planes he restores. Carolyn grew up in a world of aviation and history, with dad serving as the announcer for their family-run air shows. If her impressive solo flight is any indication, this high-flying young lass will continue to be an important part of the U.S. air show circuit for years to come. Read more about her flight and the Curtis by following the link in the podcast notes. In our Articles and Posts segment, where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at www.cc.org. This week in the news section, you'll find an article follow-up on last week's bridge race, commemorating the arrival of U.S. troops in France. The Queen Mary II... The Cunard Cruise Line's flagship ocean liner made port Saturday morning at the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal after taking part in The Bridge 2017, a transatlantic trip themed to commemorate the centennial of World War I and 100 years of friendship between France and the United States. You'll find beautiful images of the Queen in New York Harbor on her arrival in an article posted at www.cc.org news, all lowercase. The Cunard Line's historical connection with World War I reaches back to May 7, 1915, when one of their ships, the Lusitania, was sunk by Germany. This began the shift of U.S. sentiment against war neutrality in World War I. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission co-sponsored an event at New York Harbor on the centennial of the sinking. You can follow the link in the podcast notes to see the story and a video of the commemoration ceremony. In our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post is Ernst Younger, The Modern War Story. Now, this week's post is an interesting flip on convention. The Wright post steps out of the current narrative in war literature to explore our culture's allure not to peace but to violence. Rather than glorifying war, recent memoirs and books have concentrated on its debilitating and destructive effects on the returning soldier. In this post, award-winning veteran writer Elliot Ackerman gives us his take on Ernst Younger's seminal war memoir, Storm of Steel, and the ways it assigns a redeeming quality to combat violence. Don't miss this interesting and controversial post. That brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Hi, Catherine. What do you have for us? Hi, Teo. Well, we just celebrated the 4th of July, and I'm sure many people, including myself, heard at least a few bars of the Star-Spangled Banner in the last few days. One of our greatest traditions as a nation is singing the national anthem before sporting events, a tradition that feels as old as time when you participate hand over heart in stadiums and baseball diamonds across the country. But the Star Spangled Banner has only been an American sporting essential for the last hundred years, and it wasn't even our national anthem until 1931. 
An article we shared this week from the Chicago Tribune tells the story of the World Series in 1918, held in Chicago between the Cubs and the Red Sox. The day before the game, someone, probably a self-proclaimed anarchist, had tossed a bomb into a downtown federal building and post office, killing four people and injuring dozens more. The city was shaken from the experience and still reeling from day-after-day news of dead soldiers pouring in from Europe. It was September. There was still a few months left in the war. In game one, seven innings in, a naval band played the Star-Spangled Banner, and something pretty magical happened. The entire crowd stood, singing along, and cheered and screamed as the song ended. Read the full story and learn about the impact this one game had on the song that would later become our national anthem by visiting the Chicago Tribune at the link in the podcast notes. Our last story for this week comes from our Instagram at WW1CC. We posted an image of smiling young men queuing up to register for the Army. Not a totally unique looking image except for the accompanying story. By June 30th, 1917, 160,084 men had enlisted for duty at 401 United States recruiting stations. The Army rejected 206,000 applicants due to physical reasons, illiteracy, age, or because they were not yet American citizens. Enthusiasm to serve was especially evident with Polish Americans, including those pictured in this photo. About 40% of the first 100,000 volunteers were Polish at a time when Poles represented 4% of the U.S. population. It's a surprising figure and something we'll delve into deeper next week with an interview with the Polish Museum of America. So tune in for that next week. Thank you, Catherine. And that's World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Joe Johnson, Chief of Staff at the Defense Acquisition University, talking about logistics. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about the 1917 Espionage Act. Eloise Shuttler, spoken word artist and storyteller, and her one-woman show, Ready to Serve, about World War I nurses. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show, and I'm Teo Mayer, your host. As you know, we're totally supported by donations, and we want to thank all of you who contributed during the run-up and over the 4th of July holiday. We asked you to reach out to your friends and family to help us, and you did. Together, we pulled off the most successful individual donor drive we've ever had. Hey, even my sister sent in a check, so thanks, sis. If you, your friends, or your family feel left out, hey, we can remedy that. Just go to ww1cc.org slash donate. It's easy. We also want to thank the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, our founding sponsor, who generously matches all of your gifts. Visit their World War I website at www.pritzkermilitary slash ww1. There's also a link in the podcast notes. This podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org slash cn. On iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn, search for WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thanks for joining us again this week, and don't forget to tell somebody the stories that you're hearing here about the war that changed the world. So long.